Uh, James chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I remember back in Mexico when we'd have the youth group at our house. Back when our kids were in that age, we would, of course, have these games that youth groups do. And one of the games was, Life Has Passed You By. And the way this game was played was we'd get in a circle, and I don't know how we decided who started, but the idea was to get every, knock everybody else out. And the way you did that was by saying, I have never done or experienced this, let's say. And you tried to pick things that you thought everyone else had done. And if they had done them or experienced them, they would have to take a step forward and then they were eliminated. And so uh, if you were the last one standing, then people would say life had passed you by because you were the one with the fewest experiences. Like, for example, if we were playing here in Florida, we might say if somebody had never been to Disney World, I mean, that would be a that would be a knockout. Right. And say, I've never been to Disney World. And then everybody who's been to Disney World would have to step forward. Or I've uh, you know, if somebody's never swum in the Atlantic Ocean or something like that, that would knock out most people immediately. Well, let's play that just one round and I'm going to start. OK. My turn. I have never been in a church torn apart by conflict. Now, if I were to win the game with this declaration, 
uh, I would be relieved for myself, but saddened for everyone else. And saddened for the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Because I know that many have had that experience, and many churches have had that experience. And unfortunately, it's not a modern phenomenon. Here we have what may be the first book of the New Testament. And we have James addressing a church or churches that were riven with serious conflict. Um, And on the heels of what he had just said about wisdom in last week's chapter, he talked about false wisdom that was selfish and ambitious and quarrelsome. And then he talked about true wisdom that is peaceful and peaceable, that makes peace. Now he turns from talking about wisdom, he's, now he starts talking exhortation, direct exhortation to those who were quarrelsome in the midst of the Christians. Now, um, as I said more than once, James is, is hard to follow because he seems to be jumping from one thing to another. And so, uh, let me let me talk about, uh, or just mention how I think this flows. This may not be the only way to put this together, but if you look at the, the outlines, it looks like chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, talks about the source of quarrels, which are evil desires. And then, verses 4 and 5, the source of evil desires, misplaced devotion, and then the... Solution to misplaced devotion in verses 6 to 10, which is humility. And then the results of humility in verses 11 to 17, which is good speech. And once again, we see his emphasis on speech that, that whatever happens in the heart, that will be seen in what comes out of our mouth. So this is the direction. This is the flow of this text. So let's look at, look at verses 1 to 3. The source of quarrels. And that's how he begins by asking these questions. What is it? What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? And he says, this is what causes those things. Is it not this, that your passions, your desires are at war within you? And the scholars are divided about what does this within you mean? Does it mean within each one? Or does it mean within uh, the body of Christ? And I don't think we have to decide on that because both of those things are true. And he says what happened was this. These passions that were waging war within these Christians and within the churches in which they were, uh, they were causing these desires. And these desires were getting thwarted and they were frustrated because they were not able to accomplish their desires. And so what did they do? Verse 2. It says, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. That's the source of the conflict. He says, you have these unfulfilled desires in you, and you are bound to get those fulfilled, and you're not getting them, and so you turn on each other, and you fight, and you quarrel. And it says murder. And once again, it's not clear whether this was actual physical murder or whether this was uh, this was a, a, a sort of a metaphorical uh, murder. It's hard to decide. Uh, we wouldn't want to think of, of Christians in the church actually murdering each other, although if we read church history, we find that there have been examples of that 
Christians coming to, to such levels of violence against each other. But we do have a couple other references to murder in, uh, in James. Uh, for example, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And there he's speaking to Christians. And then we have another reference uh, in chapter 5, verse 6. And here he's speaking about uh, non-Christians, the, the wealthy who were oppressing the poor. And it says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And that sounds like literal murder. And so it's, it's hard to decide. And it's, it's, it's very troubling to think of it coming to that. But uh, however that may be, uh, it's, it's troubling nonetheless that there were so many fights and quarrels among these Christians. And they were fighting uh, over their own desires and frustrated because they couldn't accomplish them. Now, uh, instead of fighting, James says what we should do is this. We should pray. We should pray. He says uh, at the end of verse 2, he says, You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And he means ask God. You do not ask God. You do not pray. That's why you don't have what you want. You do not have because you do not ask God for it. And then he says... Even when you ask, there's a problem in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, he's saying, if, if you want something, you should pray about it, but at the same time, you need to understand that, that God is not just some sort of a dispenser to satisfy your passions, if your passions are evil passions in the first place. Don't count on God to do that. This is a reason for unanswered prayer. Not the only reason for unanswered prayer, but here's a reason for unanswered prayer that we're praying for selfish gratification of our untoward, our, our improper passions. So that's the source. That's the source of quarrels and fights among us. Um, then we move from there to find out what's behind that the source of these evil desires. If they're, if they're misplaced desires in us, where do these come from? And he says, well, that comes from misplaced devotion. And now what James does is he pulls a, a page out of the prophets, and he starts sounding like a thundering Old Testament prophet here, beginning in verse 4. And he says to them, you adulterous people. Now, if you look down at the footnote, at least in this version, you'll find that he used the feminine plural uh, of that of that word. He says, actually, you adulteresses. And he uses the feminine word there. And here, this is very much in keeping with the Old Testament prophets. Why? Because, both in Old Testament and New Testament, God is portrayed as the husband of His people. And that makes His people feminine. That makes His people the role of the wife. And so, we see this throughout the prophets. You see it, for example, very clearly in the, in the whole book of Hosea. This is the whole metaphor behind the whole prophet Hosea. That God is the, the faithful husband, the people are the unfaithful wife, as they turn once and again to other gods. And that's why he says, you adulteresses, you adulteresses, you have turned away from uh, your husband, and you have gone after other gods. So this is the first image of spiritual adultery, of, of turning away from the true God. 
And the second image, and here we see James doing what he often does. He, he jumps right from one image to another one. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that... What's the second image? Friendship. Friendship. So he turns from marriage to friendship. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, we in the West may not get the impact of this, especially in the day of, uh, of Facebook, because friendship has been devalued in our culture. It's just uh, you get these requests from people you don't know, and they want to be your friend, and you can click on that or uh, not click on that, or, or if somebody irritates you, then you, you unfriend them or defriend them or whatever the word is. It's a, it's a very casual sort of thing. But in this day and in most of the world... Maybe the rest of the world is also getting diluted through, through this approach to friendship on social media. But, but in the rest of the world, uh, outside of the West, friendship means something. Friendship is a lasting and deep devotion to another person. Lasting and deep, committed devotion to another person. And so that's the context in which we should read this. So when it says, do you not know that lasting and deep devotion to the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to have lasting and deep devotion to the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, in the New Testament, the word world is used in different ways. Uh, for God so loved the world. He's talking about uh, humanity. He's talking about uh, this earth on which we dwell. But oftentimes we find the word word world used in a a negative sense. Uh, James uses it that way. John uses it that way. Uh, And uh, the idea is the, the world system as it has rebelled against God. The values of the world, the priorities of the world, the unbelieving world, the world that is arrayed against God. And he's saying, if you want to sign up, if you want to be committed to those values, to to that way of, of, of dealing with life and reality, then you're making yourself an enemy of God. Because these are two friendships that cannot coexist. You can't be worldly and Christian. You can't be devoted to God and devoted to the world. Now, verse 5 is probably the most difficult verse in all of James to interpret. Because it says, Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? We won't spend time talking about all the different possibilities here, but there's there's a challenge because it's not clear what scripture that is. Also, it's, it's not clear whether to capitalize spirit as in Holy Spirit or leave it like it is here, a small spirit referring to our spirit. But the, the idea here is that uh, it seems to be at least that, that God is jealous for that which is his. And this goes along with the idea of deep and devoted friendship. For God, friendship is not a casual thing. If He gives to us, if He places in us our own spirit or the Holy Spirit, however that may be, He will not let that go. He is devoted. He longs for. He yearns for 
And it's saying when we turn aside from Him and devote ourselves to the world, then we have turned our backs on friendship and devotion to God. Now, I think if I took a poll and said, is worldliness in the church, is worldliness among Christians a a bad thing? Everybody would say, yes, it's a bad thing. And it's pretty easy to spot worldliness in other Christians, but it's much harder to find worldliness in ourselves uh, because we tend to think that we are, uh, we are self-aware and we're independent in, in how we come up with our values and our priorities and our pursuits and we're influenced by God and His Word and we're unaware oftentimes about how much the world and its values have their clutches on us and in us and influence us. It's been interesting to come back to the United States for us and see Christians who say, who would say, I form my values and my views based on Scripture. And then one of them goes to this news site for information, and the other goes to this news site for information. And if they dare to talk about these values and these views that they both say that they are forming from Scripture, we find that they are diametrically opposed, which is at least suspicious, at least suspicious that perhaps we are not so formed by God's Word as we would like to think. Perhaps we are more uh, more deeply formed and influenced by our favorite sources of information outside of Scripture. That's worldliness. That's letting the world dictate to us what is important to us. And we could ask ourselves as a test of our worldliness, if it's hard to find in ourselves, we could simply ask ourselves, how similar are we in the use of our time, in the use of our money, in our pursuits, in our life goals, in in what we hold valuable? How similar are we to the people around us who have no faith in Christ. If somebody were to come, an outside observer, and to observe our lives, knowing nothing about Christianity, let's say, would they find anything distinctively different about us if they followed us around for a week? And if they followed our neighbors around for a week, would they, would they find a distinctive difference, a, a difference in direction, a difference in commitment, a difference in values, a difference in pursuit, a difference in the use of time and energy and money? Those are the kind of questions I think we need to ask ourselves in order to see how much we have been influenced by this world system arrayed against God. So that's the second step. So, the source of quarrels, evil desires. The source of evil desires, misplaced devotion to the world. Now we get to the solution. The solution to misplaced devotion. Verses 6 to 10. Uh, And that is humility. Humility. In the midst of this denunciation of worldliness, and, and we hear James thundering here, and we ought not to tone down that thunder, but it is quite a relief that in the midst of this, this, this chapter, which has so much denunciation, there is a verse that sticks out. And it is verse 6. And it's arresting because of the contrast. But he 
gives more grace. He gives more grace. And here we see James's method and the method of all of Scripture, and that is to point out where we fall short so that we might understand our deep need for God's grace. For what is God's grace? What is it? What's the definition of God's grace? It is His favor towards sinners. His favor towards sinners. So, if that's what grace is, for whom is grace? For sinners. And so what do we have to understand before we can appreciate and and be open to and receive His grace? What do we need to understand? We need to understand that we're sinners. And that's why why James and and all of Scripture drives us to look deeply at who we are and these these deep-level commitments in our lives and evaluate those. And then he says, but God gives greater grace. And then he says, to whom that grace is available... He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then if you go down to verse 10, we have that word again, humble yourselves before the Lord. How does this work? Well, the proud don't need, according to them, any help, thank you very much. They don't need God's grace. They have this. They can do it. They don't need it. And so, God opposes them. He doesn't pour out His grace on them. But who are the humble? The humble are those who are undone. The humble are those who recognize their need. The humble are those who who see uh, the misplaced devotion in their lives. And the humble are the ones who cry out and say, Oh God, oh God, save a sinner like me. You remember... The story that Jesus told about the, the Pharisee and the, the, the tax collector who went up to the temple to pray and the Pharisee puffed out his chest and talked about all the great things he had done. And then the, the tax collector, who were, who were traitors to the nation of Israel, collecting taxes for the Romans and lining their own pockets and and uh, giving the taxes on to the Roman conquerors, so they were seen as traitors and completely unreliable. The tax collector stood at a distance, wouldn't even raise his eyes and said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus said that this man, the tax collector, went away right before God, justified, rather than the good guy, rather than the religious guy, rather than the proud Pharisee. Humble yourselves, he says, if you want God's grace. God gives His grace to the humble. And where did God, how did God most extravagantly show His grace? Well, we've seen that James assumes something that the rest of the New Testament spells out. And that is that God gives His grace most extravagantly through Jesus Christ through His coming, being born, living His perfect life, dying His substitutionary death, rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven. That's where we see God's grace manifested most clearly. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
For whom did Christ die? He died for sinners. And what do we need to do to, to access God's grace through Jesus Christ? Recognize that we are sinners. That is to say, humble ourselves before Him and receive His grace as a free gift. Now, the eventual result of humbling... Oh, by the way, going back to James, we have this series of of instructions, very strong exhortations. Verses 7 to 9. This is instruction about how to humble ourselves. You say, well, how do I do this? It says... Humble yourselves. Okay, now we we know that it's recognizing my sin, but but what else? It says, verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, this is the first step. Um, when, when, When quarrelsome couples or quarrelsome Christians come together and they're pointing the finger at each other and saying, he didn't or she didn't or she did, the first thing they need to do is each one submit themselves to God. Because if they will not do that, there's no way forward. And so that's the first step here in humbling ourselves. Submit ourselves to God. And then he says, resist the devil. Whom were they resisting in these churches to which uh, James was writing? They were resisting each other. And he says, stop resisting each other and resist the common enemy. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And God has given us means to draw near to Him. He's given us His Word. He's given us His people. He's given us prayer. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And then He says, cleanse your hands, your outward actions, and your hearts, your inward uh, affections. And then He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying constantly do that because we, we read that He opens this letter by saying, count it all joy. So he's not a killjoy. He's talking about when we find ourselves with these evil passions, these evil desires, we need to mourn over our sin. And the result of all this is in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now we need to let that sink in. Why? Because what were the people trying to get? They were trying to get their desires fulfilled. They were trying to get good things for themselves or what they considered to be good things for themselves and they weren't accomplishing it. And then at the end of all this process, he says, if you humble yourselves, God will exalt you. Now let me ask you something. What do you think's better? What do you think's better? What you can scratch and claw and fight for and obtain or what God can give you? What do you think? What would be better? what God can give you. And so you see at the end he's saying, God wants to give you good things. God wants to raise you up. He wants to exalt you. He wants to satisfy you. But as long as we are going for these little things and satisfying us with with little trinkets and fighting over those trinkets of life, we're going to miss out on the, the big things that God wants to give to us. Peter mentions this as well, and he quotes that same verse about God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and He will exalt you in due time, at the proper time. And so we need to have patience and we need to wait. Instead of clawing and saying, I want it now. And I'm going to take what little bit I can get now instead of the great things that God has for me at the proper time. 
time. Humble yourselves, he says, and he will exalt you. Now, that's the third step. The solution to misplaced devotion, humility. And we have seen time and time in James, if our hearts are changed, what else will be changed? Our mouths will be changed. Our speech will be changed. And these last two sections... Uh, 11 to 11 and 12 and 13 to 17 talk about speech situations. Speech situations. The first one is if our if our hearts are changed, if we're humbled before the Lord uh, and receive His grace, then our hearts will be changed in the way we speak about each other. He says here, don't speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you who judge your neighbor? You see, the, the, the result of exalting ourselves is that we will speak ill of other people because we will consider ourselves superior to them. But the result of being humbled before the Lord is that we won't be so concerned about other people's faults and pointing those out. We will be much more concerned about our own and confessing those and forsaking those before the Lord. And he's not saying here that we should never apply Scripture to one another. What's James doing throughout the whole letter? James is applying Scripture to us and we should apply Scripture to one another. He's talking about the situation in which we make ourselves a law unto ourselves and we place ourselves even over God's law. And he's saying there's only one lawgiver and judge and you are not that lawgiver and judge. So yes, help each other to apply Scripture to each other. But don't set yourselves up as the lawgiver. The way you speak against a brother or a sister will be transformed if your heart is transformed. And the other speech that will be transformed is how we speak about tomorrow. In verses 13 and following, it talks about a businessman or a businesswoman who confidently lays out the business plan. Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And then James reminds them and us, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You're talking about what you're, what's going to happen this next year. You don't even know about tomorrow. And he says, you are a mist. You are a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now, we may not understand that here, especially as the humidity is getting cranked up. It feels like vapor just hangs in the air. It, it, it surrounds us. But this was a a desert climate in which he was writing. If a mist appeared, it did not last long. If a vapor appeared, it was gone very, very quickly. He says that's what we're like. Even the longest of lives in the in the scheme of things is like a vapor. And he says, so therefore, you shouldn't talk so confidently about the future, when you didn't even know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, and here he tells us how to speak. He he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I learned many, many things 
that benefited me greatly by having the privilege of living in Mexico for so many years. But one of the things I learned was how to speak about tomorrow. Because there's a custom, a very biblical custom in Latin America, and at least in Mexico, but I think throughout Latin America, when people speak about the future, they say this. There are a number of different ways to say it. But they say, if God wills, if God permits, and it is part of the language. Now, I don't know how much they're thinking about that, but it's a very biblical way to speak. Because every time we say that, what are we saying? God is the one who's in control, and I am not. And I am dependent on, for all of my plans upon God's holy will. And if we don't do that, he says, you're boasting about your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, James ends with, James ends with verse 17, and once again, we kind of scratch our heads and, and wonder how this fits in to, to what he's been talking about, because now it seems so general. He says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, that just sounds like a proverb sort of hanging in the air. But he says, so, so, as if he's building on what he just said. And he may just be referring to this. If you know that you are supposed to say, if God wills, and you don't do it, well, that's sin. But I think he's doing something bigger than that. Because he has told us all sorts of things to do. He has given us much instruction in this book and we'll have more in the last chapter. And he says all these things that you've been told to do, if you know about these things and you don't do them, that's sin. Now, what is this pointing out? It's pointing out that sin is actually bigger than we thought it was. Because when we think about sin, we usually talk about the things that we didn't do. When I talk to people and I I ask them about their hope for eternity, they'll often say things like, well, I've never, and they tell me something that they didn't do. Often it's some sort of big thing. I've never killed anyone, and I've never done this. And they talk about the things they didn't do. But when Jesus, when Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He summarized them in two, not prohibitions, not negative statements, Two positive statements. And they go like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second one is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Positive commands. Things to do. And James is reminding us that if we fail to do what we are supposed to do, then that is sin as well. So, I remind you once again, as we end on this reminder that sin is greater than we thought it was, I send you back to verse 6, because God's grace is greater than that. But you see, the way out, the way forward, is not to minimize, not to deny, not to ignore, not to excuse, not to make up uh, explanations for, but to face it head on and say, Yes, Lord, that's who I am. And Your grace is greater still. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our guilt and our sin. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpour, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Marvelous grace, infinite grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. 
marvelous grace, infinite grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this book. It's, it's not an easy one in many ways. It's not an easy one to, to figure out how it flows oftentimes, but even harder than that, it, it really takes us to task. And it's uncomfortable for us. But we thank You that You love us so much that You give us a book like the book of James where He pulls no punches and He, he speaks directly to us and points out our worldliness and points out our, our evil desires and points out our, our improper methods for accomplishing those desires, our selfishness and our fighting, our boasting, our judging others. Lord, we, we, we read all these things and we, we say guilty is charged. But we thank You that in the midst of this text it says, but God gives greater grace. And Lord, we once again look to You and Your greater grace that is greater than all of our sin. And we pray, O God, through Jesus that we would be able to cleanse our hands and purify our hearts. And that You would change our hearts, change our lives, change the way we speak so that we might be instruments of grace one to another instruments of grace to the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.